0: Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Malouf, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well.
1: So like I said earlier, I wanted to retrace my steps here and see if this can be helpful for understanding skillful practice. As I had said, I was, I was contemplating doing a series of talks on some of the spiritual insights or just human insights that I feel like we could gain and glean from the whole 2020 experience. And wasn't really ready to do that. Uh, and as we've slowly moved into 2021, I feel a little bit more distance. And I was starting to contemplate, you know, and try to find meaning in this whole experience we've had in 2020. I'm trying to find some universal lessons, trying to figure out how to apply to the Dharma to the whole year. When I started thinking about it, I realized that I spent most of 2020 basically in a fight, flight, or freeze mode, and uh, I don't think I was the only only one. <laughs> Show of hands, anyone else? Fight, flight, freeze, 2020, right? And I just remember, you know, when sort of April came along before we had our first lockdown, you know, my first response to the to COVID was, okay, prepare all that sort of fight response, which is like, okay, I'll, I'll step up and see if I can manage this and stocking up some food and thinking about masks and this and that. And, you know, that seemed to be the appropriate response. Uh, and then months went by what I thought was going to be weeks turned into months. And then there was this feeling I had at times of like, I need to get out. I need to find safety somewhere. You know, I thought, okay, I can go down to LA and be with my family or go up to Olympia and be with Molly's family. And, and then the fires came and it, it just felt like uh, trapped, you know, there was a sense of being underwater or sort of claustrophobic. And uh, as it got worse, you know, there was just this sense that there's just no, uh, no getting out of this, no finding safety. Uh, and so there was that freeze, that sense of being trapped and paralyzed and, Uh, the day-to-day monotony that we all experienced in isolation. So I just had this real memory of this fight-flight-freeze paralysis that was so characteristic of this last year. And I remember, you know, there were times where, you know, I thought I was managing okay, and I think overall I did, but there were definitely times where I remember telling Molly, like, I just don't understand how to process this. I don't know what this means. I don't know. I just have no context for understanding how I should be behaving and how I should be responding and what's the right thing to do. And there was a real sense of being lost, a real sense of feeling like no matter what I did, I just wasn't quite sure it was the right thing. And I didn't know where to look for the right response. Uh, So there was a lot of those sensations, you know, that I was having in 2020. And I realized yesterday when I was rethinking our experience that we we experienced a global trauma we had this wasn't a stressful event this was a traumatic event no matter what experience we had for most of us this was very disorienting and i just wanted to read this quote about the nature of trauma and the quote goes like this i just took this off the internet uh but it was true enough for my i knew it was true enough as a therapist so i just took this off one of the medical sites um It says this, a traumatic event is an incident that causes physical, emotional, spiritual, or psychological harm. The person experiencing the distressing event may feel threatened, anxious, or frightened as a result. In some cases, they may not know how to respond, or may be in denial about the effect the event has had. 2020 was traumatizing, right? Just by definition, it was... It wasn't just a stressful year. It was, it was a real traumatizing year. Fear, anxiety, not knowing what to do, not knowing the impact. It was tough. It was tough. Not just with uh, the passing of lives, but just the stress of isolation and managing the tension of the experience. So I noticed recently that, you know, as we've moved in, at least in the U.S., you know, new president, that helped me to feel a little bit calmer, less media craziness, less social media upheaval. That made me feel sort of a little better. Uh, Vaccines, still kind of crazy, but at least it gives us some sense of hope. You know, it's not obviously an immediate answer because we're having struggle with distribution and how we're going to move through that and if they're going to be effective. But I noticed that there started to get some psychological space, this little bit of space for myself where I could start to reflect. In the heat of 2020, I just didn't have the wherewithal to reflect. And now I was starting to feel like, okay, maybe I can kind of process this a little bit. Maybe I can figure out how to make meaning out of this, this whole experience. And then this other voice came up yesterday when I was considering this, another voice came up and the way it came up is it was a memory. It was a a memory where I was uh, watching a television show and it was one of those like comedy roasts, you know, where the comedians get together and roast a comedian, right? And it's pretty intense and like they basically criticize someone but in good fun and and it's usually in jest for the most part. Um, And the MC or whoever was leading uh, this particular roast, the comedian, started to tell a 9-11 joke. And this was not too far, maybe six, eight months, maybe, maybe a year, but maybe not even that after after 9-11. He started telling this joke and then he stopped and he asked the audience, he said, is it too soon? Is it too soon? And the audience, which is filled with, you know, relatively famous comedians, mostly yelled out too soon, too soon. And that's the memory that came up uh, when I started thinking about whether I was ready to contemplate all of the stress I experienced in 2020. My heart, my mind said, okay, maybe my heart said too soon. Like this is, there was this pushback that I had against the reflection. And that's the memory that came up, which I thought was really interesting, how the mind works in that way. And it made me ask this question, which is, when do we turn towards suffering? When do we skillfully turn towards the struggles and the stress in our life? And when is it simply too soon? When is it not the skillful time to reflect on things that are stressful, that friction in our life, the relationship that's not working, the job that's not working, tension in our family, whatever the case may be, whatever dukkha may come our way, is there a time when it's too soon? And how do we know? What is the skillful litmus test? You know, <laughs> who do we reach out to, to say, Hey, is it time to, to be present with the suffering? And that was like, I kind of stopped me in my tracks when I was thinking about it. Cause of course I didn't have an answer. I knew it was about skillful effort, but there wasn't really an answer. Like, when is it? I don't know. Just guess it depends on the situation. So I started working through this and I wanted to share with you just some thoughts I have about skillfully turning towards suffering. Um, Skillfully turning towards suffering. And the first thought I had was, it's really important to remember that when the Buddha says we're going against the stream, we really are going against the stream. When we practice in the Dharma, we are choosing to go against our biological tendencies, our psychological tendencies, our social tendencies of running away from suffering, of pushing suffering to the back of our mind and instead reaching out mostly for sense pleasures and craving for sensuality and whatever we can to distract from the dukkha, from the suffering. So the path itself really is going away from something that when we start engaging in Dharma and take a deep step into the path, our natural response is going to be too soon. I don't want to touch the suffering. I just kind of want to go into denial. So that's one thing to remember in our practice is that we are really going against our habits of pushing away suffering and craving, longing, grasping for pleasantness, pleasurable sensations, this sort of escapist way that human beings naturally tend to deal with life. Part of that is just biology and evolution. Human beings don't necessarily have to be happy and free from suffering to move through life and procreate and pass on our genes and to keep the species going. We don't necessarily need to be free or be happy or joyful even to be able to do that part of it. So for the most part, biologically, the mind is just focused on this is painful, don't want to deal with it going to move on, going to get myself to safety and just going to move towards the pleasure, just going to push it away. So that's natural. This too soon cry of the heart is really a natural phenomenon. I think it's important for us to realize that first and foremost. When I started thinking about it, Buddhist psychology really doesn't talk about this process in the same way that Western psychology does. And I realized that, you know, Western psychology has like, in Buddhism, we have aversion, which is the basic pushing away of unpleasantness, right? In Western psychology, we've got a, a whole list of different definitions of how the mind does this. So I wanted to go down this list to remind ourselves how skillful the mind is in pushing suffering away and pushing suffering away and to remember that it's designed to protect us. So it's not necessarily a negative thing to not want to have to deal with or confront, or open our heart up to something that's painful. So the first word that we use in Western psychology is suppression. Suppression. And suppression is, you can remember, press. You're just pressing the snooze button. Suppression is what we do all day long when suffering arises, when discontent arises. When something arises into our heart and mind and we're like, not going to deal with that now. Suppression. Just pressing the snooze button, I'll deal with it later right? It's just that thing that we're just not going to manage. And it might, be, it might be something that's going on with our kids. They're getting into it. We're like, well, oh, not going to deal with that now. It might be our partner or our pet or who knows, like maybe something comes across Twitter and we're like, nope, not going to worry about that right now. So suppression is what we do. We're constantly trying to keep at bay so we can move forward so we can get through our day and do what we need to do to survive. So we have this mechanism, constantly suppressing, suppressing, only taking in enough of the stress to manage our day. Now, just like a snooze button, there are times when you hit snooze and you almost forget that you've pressed it, right? And then the alarm comes up again and you're like, oh, right, got to get out of bed. Okay. Same thing with suffering. We push something away and then later on in the day, we're like, oh, that's right. That thing broke. Got to fix it. Put it on the list or... Got to talk to my partner about such and such. Like, okay, we got to have that uncomfortable conversation. So this suppression allows the suffering to keep coming up and stay in awareness, but just on the outskirts enough to where we can get by. Then we have a deeper snooze, so to speak. A deeper snooze, sometimes we call denial, right? Denial is a little bit deeper because denial you can push something away so far out that you really can forget about it, right? Or just pretend that it's not even there. It's a little bit stronger of a push against dukkha. Pushing it way to the outskirts, so much so that sometimes someone has to come to us and say, hey, you know that thing that you're doing or the thing that's going on in your life? Might be time to deal with that now. Sometimes if we push it too far, right? If we we just keep snoozing it, it moves into this denial place where we might not be dealing it when we dealing with it and we actually do need to because now it's starting to do harm. So again, suppression, denial, we're all familiar with these terms. And then there's another term we use, repression in western psych. Repression is usually unconscious. Something happens, it's intense, And the mind buries it because it's too intense and overwhelming. We don't even want it to come up into awareness to press a snooze button. We just don't want to have to deal with it. And that, again, it's a protective mechanism in the mind. Something happens, it's traumatizing, it's stressful, and the mind on its own, without really much intention, simply hides it away. And eventually, it can be dealt with, hopefully. Um, But again, my point is here is that in Western psychology, we have these kind of distinctions For the way in which we push away the dukkha, we naturally protect ourselves from stress. In the most extreme cases, and not really relevant to like our normal everyday meditation, but if something is really intense, the human mind may disassociate or depersonalize in response to something where it protects itself by completely separating its consciousness from contact with the experience. And we separate ourselves so much that we don't even know. We sort of space out, so to speak, right? So again, we have these mechanisms. These mechanisms to protect ourselves from dukkha. And these mechanisms are habits. When we come to the Dharma, we have a whole history of how we've dealt with suffering, how we've dealt with stress and discontent in our life. We have a habit of when we say too soon and when we're willing to open our hearts to vulnerability and touch down on things in our life that are stressful that we have to deal with or that we don't want to deal with but we know we should. So when we're coming into meditation, we already have habits of dealing with suffering and knowing how we push things away personally, looking at our own habits of pushing things away, looking at how quickly we're willing to deal with dukkha is really important reflection for a meditator. Now, unlike that model, when you look at Buddhist pra- Buddhist practice, the Buddha says, first noble truth, there is dukkha, right? He invites us to bring awareness to dukkha. Second noble truth, there's a cause of suffering. So we turn awareness not only to the suffering, but we begin to look for cause. And then there's a way out of suffering. So we begin to look at our role that we play in suffering. And then the fourth noble truth There's a path out, and we're invited to take this journey of the Eightfold Path. But we're not really given instructions like, how much are we supposed to open up our hearts to suffering? How frequently? When are we ready to actually do the work? And how do we know? And the, the Buddha's response to this is skillful means, right? Skillful effort. So on the Eightfold Path, we have this encouragement of, you don't want to practice too little. You don't want to practice too much. You don't want to let go too much. You want to be alert and ardent and mindful, but not too clingy. So we have this general orientation to skillful practice, but we don't really have a lot of clarity on what it means to skillfully engage in suffering. When is it too soon? And when am I ready to actually be vulnerable to healing from something specific in my life? And I hadn't thought of that until yesterday when it came up for me that it's not really that clear when that starting gun goes off, when we should be really turning towards the dukkha. And then I realized when I really looked at my practice that Buddhist practice is doing a couple different things at the same time. On the one hand, the Dharma and the enlightenment factors that we cultivate in Vipassana, the first thing that these qualities and these tools are doing for us is training us or untraining us To consider suffering as a path to liberation, as a path to freedom, as something that we don't want to suppress, something that we really want to lean into continuously. So the first thing that the Dharma is actually doing is unwinding the suppression, repression, denial habits and instilling a whole new set of habits in place of those that's not easy, as we know, as meditators, right? We ask the mind to be present with what is so, and it immediately says, no, I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm not going to deal with present moment experience, because we have such a habit of wandering away from what is so. So on the one hand, the Dharma is teaching us to be present, encouraging us to lean into the suffering. But the second part of this is while we're learning to be present, we are cultivating a set of enlightenment factors that are building up our courage, our strength, and our perseverance to be able to manage opening our hearts to the suffering itself. So we're not just engaging in this first noble truth idea. We're actually gaining knowledge and gaining skills to be able to handle the very journey that we're being asked to take on. And the the, the easiest metaphor that I've found is in video games. And I'm not even a video gamer, really. Um, But I always think of video games because it just seems like the appropriate metaphor. So in video games, you know, you have levels and each level in the video game is harder than the previous level, right? You're leveling up to a more challenging conflict, so to speak, right? So in the video game schema, you're moving up levels and each level gets harder, But with each level, you gain more skills, more tools, more experience. And if you wanna take video game analogy, literally, weapons, right? More gear, more armor, more swords, whatever, more guns, all kinds of stuff. So in the video game world, each level you go up, you're faced with a more challenging task, but you have more skills to be able to manage it. And that is exactly what happens in the Dharma. As we move deeper into meditation, we're being asked to be vulnerable and open to deeper and deeper layers of suffering. But as we move, we're also given the tools that provide us the very strength and the very courage and the very ability to make that journey and to really be vulnerable and to really lean into that first noble truth. So where it might seem a little scary because we've trained the mind to run away from suffering The Buddha says there's a way of leaning into suffering that both allows you to hold suffering in awareness and to manage it, to be with it and to really face it. And so that's the difference that I noticed in myself when I was thinking this through. The mind and heart might say, I'm just not ready to deal with this. But we might not be aware that we actually do have the tools. We actually do have the resilience. We actually do have the skills because we practice them in meditation to handle some more stressful stuff in our life. Now, skillful effort is still gonna come into play and I'll talk about this in a minute, but the thing to know about meditation is that we are going against the stream, we're going against our traditional aversion to being in touch with suffering, which is totally protective and natural, and we're developing skills to manage that challenge, to manage that journey. So just to bring the point home, I wanted to just go through real quickly some of our enlightenment factors to remind us how these factors are supposed to help us as we level up in this spiritual video game. So let's just remind ourselves of what these factors do for us as we learn to use them strategically and we learn to get better at bringing them into awareness. So let's just talk mindfulness, right? The stronger our mindfulness becomes, the easier it is to see the suffering The stronger the mindfulness, the easier it is to really see the suffering and to see the role we're playing in sustaining it in our life, in keeping it going, in fueling it. So as we're practicing mindfulness, mindfulness is helping us to see suffering more quickly, to be able to identify quicker the role we're playing, and to then let go and decrease it. It's challenging with mindfulness because... As mindfulness increases, the intensity of the suffering also increases. Our sensitivity to it can become very intense, very acute. And at that point in our practice, we have to have a little faith that the Dharma is going to give us the tools to handle the experience, to go deeper, that we do level up in our practice. But we have to lean in and be vulnerable to prove to ourselves that we can really handle it. So that's where skillful effort really comes in. That moment when you ask yourself, can I just lean in a little further to see if I really have the courage to face this experience? Or is it truly too soon and I'm just not ready to go there? It's a very authentic question to have, even in the Dharma. But asking ourselves this by remembering that we are cultivating qualities of awakening that are helping us to be able to handle more deeper, more complex suffering in our life is really important in that moment as well. Again, mindfulness, as it gets stronger, creates concentration, what we call samadhi. A concentrated mind allows you to be with suffering of greater intensity for longer periods of time without being overwhelmed. Without mindfulness, being present to suffering can be really debilitating. But with concentration being developed through mindfulness, we begin to gain the skills of holding suffering in awareness for longer periods of time with less impact because we now have the tools to do that. Again, equanimity, another enlightenment factor. Equanimity is our balance factor. It's our factor where we hold suffering in awareness without overreacting or underreacting. It's a balanced response to the moment-to-moment experience that's held in mindfulness, and sometimes you could call equanimity non-reactivity. That's not always what it means, but sometimes it does just mean not reacting. The beauty of equanimity is that so much of the suffering in our life comes from an overreaction to a situation, an underreaction to a situation, or an inability to just say, hey, I'm not going to take part in this. I'm going to let go and not let this get get me riled up. So I know I'm not the only person. Like, How many times in your life have you had an experience where the suffering was simply a result of you reacting to the situation? Like, If you could have just let it go, it would have been fine, right? But there was an overreaction. Or how many times in your life is the suffering an actual result of not engaging in a skillful action, right? So, We're being asked to engage in dukkha. We're being asked to like be vulnerable and to lean into suffering in a way that we normally wouldn't. And we're being asked to have a little faith that these enlightenment factors that we're cultivating when developed can really help us be in that moment of the pain or the stress or the friction and manage it, manage it in a way that we're not used to doing this management of the experience just so happens to decrease the suffering right that change in the way we engage then decreases the suffering decreases the suffering so as we move along and these enlightenment factors become stronger in us we can manage much more discontent in our life with grace and with ease and with self-love but of course it's a journey of skillful effort we have to learn how to do it as we go along One last point I wanted to make about the enlightenment factors was tranquility and joy, which are cultivated often through loving kindness practice. But our enlightenment factors of tranquility and joy are pleasure. It's the pleasure that's created in the meditation. The Buddha talks about how tranquility and joy are spiritual food and how feeding on tranquility and joy reduces suffering. And from a straight up psychological perspective, what he's basically saying is, when suffering arises, if you've cultivated the ability to create joy and tranquility, you can simply counterbalance the suffering and tune it down or tone it down by using meditation to create a sense of ease, to create a sense of well-being in the moment. And what's really interesting, when you look at uh, trauma-based therapies, right, One of the first things you learn to do as a therapist when you're working with someone who's had trauma is to help them create a safe, pleasurable space inside that they can go to if the therapy gets too intense. It's exactly what the Buddha is saying. We're going to walk this path, but our enlightenment factors are not just mindfulness and equanimity. We're going to need to be able to cultivate joy because when the path gets rough and life gets rough, we're going to have to fall back into a space of pleasure and ease we're going to have to be able to tone down the intensity of what's coming up in the mindful mind and that's where the pleasure factors of enlightenment come in they're a counterbalance to the experience of the suffering and the more skillful we are and be able in being able to bring those up into awareness right the more skillful we walk the path the easier it is to lean into suffering, when we know we have a safe place inside, where Tanisra Obiku says uh, you can take a hit of jhana, right? You can take a hit of tranquility or a hit of loving kindness and bring yourself back on track if things get too intense. So the Buddha was aware that there might be this part of your mind that says, ooh, too soon, I don't want to deal with this. And there might be times when, yes, it is just too soon. It is not the appropriate time to lean in to the dukkha. You press the snooze button, you suppress it for a while skillfully, and you come back to it when you're ready, when you feel like you have the strength and the perseverance and the skills to manage the experience. But we always remind ourselves the path gives us some strength that we might not be aware of that we're cultivating all along the way of the experience, that we're leveling up And we're able to gain armor and laser guns and swords and all kinds of things to help us with the deeper part of the training, which is getting really inside the heart and mind into those deep layers that we often don't want to see, that we tend to just keep hitting snooze and keep hitting snooze until it's just repressed and it's just buried in a box in a basement in the heart. And we've really just turned away from it. And then on occasion, that box opens up when we're not ready for it and ends up creating Harm or stress in our lives in some way or another. So that's where I'm, where my mind went <laughs> when I thought about looking at 2020 and looking at whether I was ready to really get in touch with the stress of this last year and draw out some spiritual uh, insight from my experience. And I want to conclude with an exercise, a little reflection here that I usually do in workshop settings, but I thought I would throw it out here because. You can do this exercise on your own quite a, without you know, guidance, and it can be really helpful for asking yourself, are you ready to get in touch with a particular stress in your life? So grab a pen and a piece of paper, if you will. You can also do it, of course, as a meditation if you're not in the mood to write anything. You can just use it as a contemplation. But I'm going to ask you to think through a couple things. This exer- I really like this exercise a lot. Um, it's really helped me. And so this is where I came up with this idea. For a long time, long time ago, one of my favorite movies was uh, The Usual Suspects. And I don't know if anyone remembers this movie, but basically what happens in this movie is that there's a crime committed and the police bring in the usual suspects because they figure one of them has done it. (laughs) So they create a lineup. And anyway, the movie does what the movie does. uh, But there's this idea that you've got this lineup of the usual suspects because they're the ones that for the most part, you know, probably did it. And to this day, when I think of the suffering in my life, I think of it as a lineup of the usual suspects. I think to myself day to day, I've got some pet peeves. I've got some relationships. I've got some history. There are things in my life that cause me discontent and they're the usual suspects, right? They're there I snooze them quite a bit, you know, I might not want to have to deal with them and they keep getting into trouble. They keep causing harm inside me, inside other, you know, for the way I interact with others, but there's this lineup that happens. And I think it's important every so often to do this internal process of lining up all your usual suspects of stress and discontent and taking a look at them in a particular way. And so here's how I usually do it for myself. just make a quick list it can be any number actually but you know 3 to 5 2 to 3 whatever's comfortable of your usual suspects what are the usual triggers grief stress that causes dukkha day to day in your life your particular set of suspects that tend to get in the way disturb what are they everyone's got everyone's got a few So you're gonna invite these guests into awareness. And then you're gonna ask a series of questions. And the series of questions are designed to bring the suffering into awareness, to really bring the suffering into awareness and to ask yourself, is it too soon to really deal with these? Is it too soon to lean in? Have I pressed the snooze button too much over the years? Is it time to bring one of these criminals to justice, so to speak. So here are the questions that I've come up with for myself that I really like. First question is, how often is this stress or this condition or situation or person disruptive in your life? How often is it coming up? How often is this dukkha present? Is this a dukkha that happens once a week, once a day, once a month? How often are these stresses coming up for you? Now, the companion question to that is, and you might do this as a scaling question. um, On a scale of 1 to 10, how intense is that particular suffering when it does come up? Because we have suffering in our life that may not come up very frequently but when it does come up, it's like a nine or a 10, right? Or an eight. It's that person in our life. It's that circumstance in our life. It's something that we've pressed snooze on quite a bit, maybe because it doesn't come up that frequently, but when it does come up, it's significant dukkha. So how often is important, but also asking yourself, you know, how intense is it when this is actually present in consciousness, in the heart? What is the intensity? Or the severity, you might ask yourself, or the annoyance level, right? How annoying is it? How disruptive is it in your life when it does, in fact, arise into awareness? Now, the next question this, this one is something that you have to spend a little time on. It's beyond the scope of today's talk, but I want you to write the question down because it's really helpful. I found it really helpful. Once you have this sense of your usual suspects here that are common in your life and you see, okay, how often is it happening and how intense is the dukkha? Then you want to ask yourself this, what is the cost of not facing that particular suffering? What is the cost of not really leaning in to it? What is the cost of not opening your heart to it, opening your mind to it? And really accepting that it's something you'd like to heal from, get over, transcend, whatever it is you're writing, because it could be different for different people. But what is the cost of not facing it? Is there a cost to your well-being? Is there a cost to the intimacy in your relationship? Is there a cost to authenticity um, often comes up when we don't lean into suffering? Um, maybe you lose sleep. I certainly have stuff in my life that the cost of not managing it is I get insomnia, and that's that's a cost that I that I pay for not leaning in. There might be a financial cost, an emotional cost, a physical cost. It could be anything, but the real question is, what price are you paying for not bringing that suffering? into active, (laughs) into active engagement, like, you know, just hitting the snooze. And again, it can be different at different times. Excuse me. It's not always the same, you know, sometimes there's a different cost or multiple costs for not uh, leaning in. And sometimes the cost is too great, right? And, And it's just not time again, too soon. It's like the cost of really dealing with it is not something you have the time, the energy or the strength to deal with. And that's fine. Then the last question I like to ask, and this one always gets me, uh, how long would you like to continue to pay that price in your life? Whatever it's costing you, how long would you like to continue? And are you comfortable with that is really the question. And the reason I love that question is because it really reminds me and really forces me to ask myself is it time is it time do i really want to continue paying that price for my well-being and my health is it really time to to tune in and to be vulnerable and to take my path into that particular suffering And so the last thing, turning this into a mindfulness exercise, when you ask yourself these questions and you kind of take an inventory of the dukkha, it's good to look at the resistance, right? It's good to look, bringing this back around to the very beginning of our talk, it's good to look at what the heart and mind are saying, right? You'll say things like, it's not a good time. I don't have the energy. I'll do it later. Um, You might tell yourself, This is the best that I can I can do, meaning this is the best I get in my life with this certain dukkha. You know, sometimes we feel like it's always going to be there. We're never going to get over it. And this is just something I'm going to have to put up with. And it might be true. It might be true that there are some stresses in your life that you just manage. Right. They never really go away, but you just you're like, okay, that's going to be there. I'm just going to. And maybe that's true. And maybe it's not. Maybe there's fear there. You don't know. The other thing that happens, I find that when we we confront deeper suffering or we confront some kind of stress in our life, it brings up the voices from our past of folks that haven't believed in us, haven't encouraged us, or haven't supported us in the way that we would have liked. And oftentimes when we face a great obstacle, those who have seeded self-doubt, those voices come up and we think, I can't do this. I'm not capable. And really we do, but the voices of our past, the voices of people in our life that weren't very supportive or convinced us that we couldn't do something tend to come up to the surface. So oftentimes we hit that snooze button, not because we don't want to be with the suffering or deal with the suffering, but we simply don't think that we have the capacity to do so right? Because of whatever the reason, we've just internalized somebody else's voice and we don't have the self-confidence yet or the resilience or the courage uh, or the strength to be able to, to put it in perspective. So this is one of those exercises that in and of itself, you could say, is the first noble truth, looking at the suffering, really taking it in and I like this because the Buddha does not do anything. There's nothing in the teachings I'm aware of like this that helps us to really say, Hey, am I ready? Am I ready to do this? You know, am I, it's more like, Hey, go do it. (laughs) And you know, I'm not always ready personally and I'm not the only one. So this can just give you some, uh, a framework to be able to look at certain things, um, and ask yourself, is it too soon or is it really time to look at something and, Am I going to have a little faith in the practice that I've cultivated that will give me the strength and the tools to be able to manage it now, even though maybe a year ago I didn't feel like I had, you know, the tools or confidence to do so? So in light of that, this just came up for me. I really wish all of you well. I really wish that everyone in this room can really see that you are worthy of healing from whatever the harm, whatever the stress, whatever the baggage I really hope that at some point no matter how far down the road that you can see that you're worthy of healing that you can heal and that the dharma is a hugely helpful set of tools for us to heal ourselves from suffering and that we're all worthy of taking up this journey of of self self-healing and that it's hard you know it's hard it's hard to do it takes a lot of courage and a lot of support hence we take refuge in each other on the path right hmm. I think we'll pause there. I think we'll pause there. I wish you all grace and ease with the healing. Grace and ease. Before we move into Metta, let me just say, this kind of Dharma talk can bring things up because I've asked you to lean in to suffering. I've asked you to line it up and write it out. So if there's any... Aftercare, you need, if you want to send me an email if something's come up and it's not going to resolve itself or you feel confused or stressed or if anything I said was, you know, leaves you feeling incomplete or, you know, discombobulated in any way, please shoot me an email and we can email or get on the phone or something. I don't want to leave you in a space of discontent. Um, I'm hoping this exercise will just allow you to have a little bit more strength and courage. So just want to throw that out there thank you so much my friends for joining me this evening and thanks for letting me take you down that little road my heart and mind went down yesterday next week when we continue I think I will <laughs> unless I find another rabbit hole I will start uh, a series of talks talking about the the lessons of 2020 that I think can be hugely helpful and um, looking at how the Dharma can really help us heal from this traumatic year to really help us to lean in with the first noble truth and and see that there's a path out. So I hope to, to get started on that uh, next week. Other than that, let's do some meta, get back in touch with body and breath and wish some well for everyone. Let's return to presence. Let's take a long, slow, deep breath in, feeling into the body deeply. Inviting some rest and ease. Been sitting for a while. Breathe that breath energy into every nook and cranny of the body. Opening up. Expanding the body and the heart together. It's always a great reminder. We are always stronger than we think. Incredible capacity to heal and to love and be loved. Incredible capacity to heal. Let's remind ourselves that we come together to heal ourselves so we can be a refuge for others so that all beings can be free from suffering. All beings can know joy and tranquility, delight, happiness, laughter, the joy of an awakened heart, an open mind. May we all be free from suffering. May we all be free from suffering. Let us know true love and true happiness in this lifetime. And let's invite ourselves to never forget to spread that goodness to all beings. To make a strong intention to show up with kindness and patience, perseverance, courage, so we can truly be a refuge to others, so we can spread goodness and kindness wherever we go. Bring awareness to some positivity in the heart or the body, Touch down on that goodness that lies within. And make a wish for all beings. If you could wish for anything and know it would come to pass for all beings, what would you wish for in this moment? What would you wish for for all beings? May all beings be free. May all beings be free. Thank you so much, my friends, for choosing to spend the evening with us. Your generosity of heart and mind is greatly appreciated. Be safe, be well. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for coming.
0: Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge, so this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.WednesdayWakeUp.com and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.